He's a former law enforcement officer in England. He left the department at their rank of police detective. He was involved in investigating organized crime, terrorism. He's involved in the 311 TSA travel rule. I'll explain that. Growing up in England, policing, violence, and much more on the Law Enforcement Today Show. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For the latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. And if you're on the Clubhouse drop-in audio chat app, be sure to look for me and follow me. My name's John, the letter J, Wiley, W-I-L-E-Y. You can also search for at L-E-T Radio Show. That's John J. Wiley, W-I-L-E-Y, at L-E-T Radio Show on the Clubhouse drop-in audio chat app. Calling us from the great state of Minnesota, we have Simon Osimo on the phone. Simon, well, we're all familiar with the term bi-coastal, meaning someone spends a significant amount of time on the East Coast of the United States and a significant amount of time on the West Coast of the United States. Simon is kind of bi-Atlantic or bi Pondle, is that a right phrase? I don't know. He was born and raised in the United Kingdom. He's a former English police detective living in Minnesota. Simon, thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Very much appreciated. Well, thanks, John, for the invitation. I'm really excited to talk to you and um, hopefully share some wisdom and, and let people know a bit of it more about my life and my experiences in the, in the UK police. One of the things is Americans are, and I don't know why, I'm going to just put it out there. Americans are fascinated with the British accent. And I know I've had friends that he was in the the British Air Force, for lack of better terms, stationed in Southern Maryland, and she's from a different part of England, and the kids are born in different parts, and they all had different accents. And when you put them together, you could understand and see the differences. We're in the United Kingdom where you're born and raised. Yeah, so I'm from a town called Reading, which is around sort of 40, 50 miles west of London. So for some people listening, it might sound sort of very London sort of esque, but it's actually just sort of west of of London. But John, you raise an interesting point because for your podcast, people actually won't know from my accent, but I'm actually, uh, my dad is black Nigerian, my mum is white English, so I'm actually uh, mixed race and I've been stopped by the police before and when I start talking, it confuses them very greatly to see this black guy with an English accent talking. So we often have a laugh and a joke at the side of the road about that. It's quite, it's quite funny to see when I talk how it can um, capture people off guard. They're not expecting it. It's one of the things I love about doing this show. This radio show, it's on, I think, 50 stations now, broadcast once a week across the United States and a successful podcast. But one of the reasons we launches show is to break the the hollywood stereotypes about what police are like and granted simon you're from a different country but you were a police officer and there's many similarities there's some differences but you break all those stereotypes which i applaud and i love yeah and one of the things john it's interesting you say that because what i always say to, to people 
is that, you know, the police departments or police force, as we call in England, they should re- be representative of the communities. Shouldn't, people should be surprised to find, you know, um, black people or Asians or any ethnicity because you've got to reflect the community that you, that you serve. So um, it, it does fascinate me when people don't expect to see certain profiles. But, you know, we've got to, we've got to reflect those communities. But, yeah, I mean, I grew up in very humble background. It's important for my story that people know that, you know, my parents separated before I was born. So I've never met my father. That meant that I lived in a, a council house in American terms. That means sort of social housing, uh, you know, wasn't sort of um, what didn't grow up in poverty, but lived in sort of uh, very poor and humble um, backgrounds. Um, and there was key times in my life, John, where, you know, perhaps I could have gone in the opposite direction and, and people from my school age might be saying, hey, Simon, I'm surprised to hear that you spent 14 years in the police force. I thought you'd end up in prison yourself, you know. So that, that's part of my sort of journey um, journey as well. So, yeah, we're, we're, we're all different people, all different backgrounds, you know, serving the, serving the community at heart. So many people in police work that I've met came to a point in their life where they're like, which side of this fence or the law do I want to be on the good side the bad side or whatever terms you want to use did you have a point in your life where you decided look this is the direction I want to take my life in I don't want to be a part of the street life I don't want to be part of crime yeah absolutely I mean if you take you know the area that I grew up in um, like I said I mean I grew up on a, a council estate which is sort of social housing so by nature and demographic most people on there were poor or were living on some type of government assistance and, you know, I look at my time in the police force, and I should say to your listeners, I spent some of my time in uniform at police in the town where I grew up. And I think I mostly arrested between five and ten people that were sort of my age, that I've sort of um, gone to school with. And I do look at that and say, well, why, why, why didn't I go in that direction? I've got to be the... Uh, very understanding and loving son to say that how my mum raised me was was crucial to that. At times when I could have been um, going on the wrong path, you know, I was talked about hard. I was taught about sort of hard work, you know, perseverance, you know, determination, having respect for for, for property. So all those things uh, made me always stay in a straight line. But I've come to understand in my life, John, like a lot of us do. But not everyone has that stable environment. I always craved a father figure, but I don't think you necessarily need two parents in your life, but you do need someone that places faith in you. So I think that's, um, that, that is a key reason why I didn't drift into the wrong circles like, like some people do, is I had a very, very loving mother who was always very supportive of everything I wanted to do. And I know now, age 42, not everyone has that, that luxury. Not everyone does. And I, I've met people that came from very similar backgrounds that never got in trouble, that were and are very accomplished in life, that are very successful. And I've met people who were very successful and came from what's considered a privileged background, very wealthy families that are hardcore criminals. And sometimes it's got a lot to do with it, and sometimes it doesn't. And I'll be honest with you, Simon, I don't know the rhyme or reason behind it anymore. Yeah, no. Well, and I'll tell you an interesting um, story of time. You know, what I learned, John, was the criminal mind fascinates me. And I became a detective at 23, which, again, on U.S. terms, is most probably very young. But what I always used to say to people, if you're good enough, you're old enough. You know, if anyone would, would challenge my age inside the police, you know, I would just say, well, look at my track record for solving crime. But I can remember 
a, a, a pedophile ring was sort of um, caught on the west coast of LA and they had all these credit card details from across the world and they gave us these credit card details in the UK of all these men that accessed this, this pedophile site. And basically we went around the houses and um, seized their computers. If we found anything on their computers, then we'd then go back and talk to them because all we knew was their credit card had been used on this child pornography site. And there was one um, guy, I'll name him because he was convicted, a guy called Graham Jerome. Uh, and we went around there and I said, you know, are we going to find anything on your computer? And he said, well, you tell me what you found and I'll tell you what I'm going to say. So I was like, okay, John, listen, if he wants to, he wants to be that type of person, we can do that. And it took three or four months to do an analysis of his computer. And it was something ridiculous, John, like 15,000 indecent images of children catalogued you know, folded all on his hard drive. And I went back to him and said, it doesn't really matter what you say, um, you know, you're going to prison. And this guy, you know what this guy said to me, um, John? He looked me in the eye and said, um, you know, someone who's downloaded all these images of children, he said, do you find men or women attractive? And I said, well, I find women attractive. He said, so you can do whatever you want to me, why do you think you can change my sexuality and my preference? Because I like, you know, and he went on to tell me what he what he liked. I won't trouble your listeners with, with having that burden. But in that moment, John, it really fascinated me because I was like, okay, this is the conversation. You know, he was saying to me, you know, as much as you can't um, change your sexuality to find men attractive, why do you think incarceration is going to change me? So, and on that you know, note, we're going to take a short break. We're talking like with that, Simon Osimo on the Law Enforcement Today Show, a retired uh, former police detective for United Kingdom. He's an author, he's a podcaster, and he's also heavily involved in a case that impacts travel for terrorism reasons. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. There's only one official Facebook page. What you do, you do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today radio show. Click like and follow. There you'll find updates about upcoming episodes of the radio show. You can contact me. We also find unique, one-of-a-kind editorials and news articles. That is our Facebook page, Law Enforcement Today radio show. Be sure to click like and follow. Return conversation with Simon Osmo on the Law Enforcement Today Show. Simon is a former police detective from England. He's also a podcaster and author, and I'm breaking all kinds of stereotypes from Hollywood about law enforcement. Before we break, Simon, we're talking about understanding the criminal mind, and we're talking about sexual preference. And look, I I had to deal with rapists and sex offenders and uh, child sex predators and that's a part of the job that i'll be honest with you doesn't really quite go away and it didn't matter if the victim was 80 years old or eight months old uh, the younger ones were really hard and the older ones they were all difficult to be honest with you but i never understood those cats yeah and i'll tell you um you know about understanding the criminal mind john and on one thing that my time as a detective talking to so many sophisticated criminals is that you know that line is very thin between which way that they can walk and it's actually a guy that i incarcerated around 15 years ago who was a white collar criminal very well known in in england um now in his 40s he's been over sort of 20 years incarcerated 
But even when I used to investigate him time and time again, I could see something in him, John, thinking, you know, he's very entrepreneurial. I used to think if only he could harness that sort of spirit and that sort of, um, um, you know, entrepreneurial spirit for the good, he could achieve so much in, in his life. And really, some people find his story amazing. Others say that it is a Hollywood movie. But when I immigrated to America, you know, 10 years ago, around five years ago, um, this guy was out of prison, started to turn his life around. There was a news article on him and actually rang him up, John, and said, hey, I'm the person that put you in prison for a while. Me and him held a very um, good and deep conversation. Um, you know, and I've sort of remained what I now consider a friend in his life because he has turned his life around. He's taken what used to be a criminal mind and now has become an entrepreneur. And he's incredibly successful, John, most be more successful than what I will ever do, um, and is doing well with it. So it is, it is interesting on that criminal mind as to um, how it can really change and develop with age and just sort of where, where people are. Some life is about perspective, isn't it? It's fascinating. It is. And when we look at what the news media and social media and Hollywood puts out, they, they, they portray this image that, Every encounter with the police, especially when there's an arrest made, it's always hostile, it's always aggressive, and people are almost pugilistic with each other and and enemies. And that's not the case. I had many people that got sober and that got clean, and they would come up to you and say, you know, you helped save my life by locking me up. And I remember clearly having a conversation with drug dealers, armed drug dealers saying, dude, you're out here every day of the year. 12, 14 hours a day, doesn't matter if it's snowing, raining, windy, cold, doesn't matter. You're out here, you're trying to dodge the police, you're trying to dodge people ripping you off, you're trying to dodge other dealers trying to steal from you, and if you put that kind of energy into something legitimate, you'd be a wealthy, wealthy man. Yeah, and a lot of people, I mean, not all, I mean, you mentioned yourself, you know, there are some very sophisticated criminals, and I've come across a few that have had everything in life, and they've been given opportunities, they've had wealth in their family. But the, the the basis of most of the people that I met, there are people that have had no trust in their life. They've had no direction. They've had no role, role models. Um, believe it or not, you know, I mean, I lost count one time as to how many years I'd incarcerated people for. I think it was hundreds of years. I lost count. So we used to work in organized crime. So we used to dish out big sentences. But I'm not too sure that sort of incarceration is the full way because when they get incarcerated, what rehabilitation is there for them? A lot of these people need social skills. They need to know how to hold down a job. They need to know how to interact in society. So, so there's many components um, of it, um, but I'm not truly convinced that solely incarceration is the way, way forward because of the upbringing that a lot of these criminals have had. Um, but they, they need guidance in life, which some some people um, just, for whatever personal circumstances, don't have. Fascinating. Yeah, I'm, I don't know the answer to that either. And I, I'll be honest with you. I swing like a pendulum on it sometimes. And, yeah. and a lot of it has to do with the individual. There are so many people in prison in the United States that I encountered that were there. If it wasn't for drugs and alcohol, they would never would have done the things they did and wound up being incarcerated. Now, granted, they're responsible for what they've done. So they have to pay a price. Uh, the other ones are people that had 10 bad minutes of life where they made a bad decision and they wound up paying the price by spending a certain amount of time in prison. And then you have the hardcore career criminals. The hardcore career criminals, I think a lot of them are beyond rehabilitation, at least by techniques I would know. The other two, man, it's a different situation. And many of them come out and lead great lives afterwards and are happy, 
healthy, productive members of society. And I, I welcome them with open arms. I really don't know what the answer is, but I know part of the problem is, you know, economic. But I grew up poor. You said earlier you grew up poor. I grew up in a, a military family, and everybody's a military family. And back then, we made they made next to nothing. And we all had hand-me-downs. We grew into our clothes. We bought clothes too big. We bought sneakers that were too big and put newspaper in the toes to grow into them. Uh, and I got a job so I could save enough money to buy a pair of Levi's jeans because we couldn't afford them and Converse sneakers. And that was my motivation time. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to work every day of the summer so I can have one pair of jeans and one pair of sneakers. Yeah, you know, and it's very true because I would say that, you know, if you look at my personal life growing up, you know, I sort of mentioned that, you know, I had a, an absent father that I've never met, you know, lived in social housing, you know, sort of my mum didn't work, so there was only sort of um, government assistance um, coming in. You had free school school meals. Um, you know, life would mostly look at me and say, well, well someone's, a, you know, someone's a victim here of society or circumstances. But I mean, one of the things that I see about myself is I've never seen myself as a victim. What I say to myself is, well, how do I change this? Um, and I, cha- I changed through my change my circumstances through hard work, determination, and finding a, a strong career where I could find purpose in. So, yeah, it is interesting. So those are definite choices you made back then. And I would suspect you have to make those choices on a daily basis. It may not be right in front of you saying, oh, i got to do this. But somewhere along the lines, you have to decide, look, there's no easier, softer way. If I want certain things in life, i got to get busy and i got to work for them. Yeah, absolutely. And even within my police career, I mean, there were um, there are not many times when, you know, if I, if, I wanted, if I wanted a job within the police, um, John, you know, generally I would go for that job and I would get it. If I wanted to become a sergeant um, when I left the police, uh, I was a detective sergeant, you know, I would work for it and, and get it. And it might sort of see results. But what I would say where I became very successful is is that consistency of studying, working hard, building those blocks. And someone might just say, well, any job Simon goes for, he wants to go on the robbery team, he gets it. You know, he wants to go and organize crime, he gets it. But behind the scenes was the hard work, the consistency to, to, to get there. And those were the sure learned behaviors because at school... You know, I left school with my high school diploma. I'm not very clever, John. I'll be the first to admit that, but I can work very hard. No no one will work harder than me is one one of my sayings in life, for sure. Look, I I was not a great student. I begged for one point to pass algebra and geometry because I got a 69 all the time and had to get that extra point. But I will outwork just about everybody else. We're talking with Simon Osimo. Simon is a former police detective from England. He's also a podcaster and author. He lectures and trains law enforcement in the United States. When we return, we're going to talk about organized crime investigation in the United Kingdom and more. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back. Are you wondering where you can find more great podcasts? Head to letradioshow.com, click Be Heard, and discover other fantastic podcasts like this one. Also available on our free app, all at letradioshow.com. Back to our conversation with Simon Osimo on the Law Enforcement Station. Simon is calling us from Minnesota. He's originally born and raised in the United Kingdom in England. He is a former police detective. Was it from Reading, Pen- uh, Reading Pennsylvania? Uh, Reading, England, correct? Correct. Right, that's correct, John. 
See, my my background in the Mid-Atlantic is popping up because Reading, Pennsylvania was where he went to the outlet stores to go shopping and buy bags and bags of socks and underwear and all that stuff. So, totally different environment. But you immigrated to the United States. You did about 14 years in law enforcement. And before we went to the break, you were talking about if you wanted something in your law enforcement career, you're very driven. And if you wanted to get in a robbery squad, you, you, you worked to get it done. And part of your career was involved in organized crime and terrorism. And I know that's something that affects a lot of people. Terrorism is something that's international. The organized crime portion of it, we tend to think of American organized crime, and we don't think of the organized crime aspects in the United Kingdom. Uh, brief overview, what was that like to get into that form of policing? How was how difficult was it for you? Yeah, and actually, so it's very, very difficult. So in my police department, so our police force, as we call it England, was Thames Valley Police, and there's around 4,000 sworn officers and maybe two or 3,000 support staff. So it gives you an idea, very large. I believe, John, in England, population of 65 million there's only around 50 different recognized police departments that govern that entire country populations. A lot larger, uh, you're a lot more powerful, you have a lot more control and a lot more, more influence. And so there was around 40 detectives in organized crime out of a department of, you know, sort of 4,000 sworn officers. So to get into the team, you had to be very good. And to stay there, you had to be very good because there was always someone wanting to take your place, which means that you attract people that are highly motivated, highly dedicated. And also when that phone call comes in at two o'clock in the morning to say, we're on for surveillance, you're going to get those people that sort of jump out of jump out of bed. You know, I was, I was that guy and I was like everyone. You know, you see these cop shows, you're fascinated by it. And I always love to see John what happens when someone closes their, close their door. And I believe another sort of skill that I have, which you need in organized crime, is you need patience. I believe it's why the, the Chinese and Russians are very good at sort of infiltrations um, because they have, they have patience. But different to the US, we in England, our chief of police can authorize and can sanction many different um, covert police tactics because in England we don't have federal law enforcement we just have we just have law enforcement so within my team of 40 detectives we would do phone tap investigations uh, we would do what we call covert entries is a police term really you're breaking into people's houses and planting listening devices we would do um, surveillance following people around we would monitor people's personal finances through um, the sort of the, the financial institutions and most of that john can be authorized by the chief of police which is very different culture than here in the u.s um, the british system is based on it's difficult to catch these organized criminals as it is if you're following Simon Osimo and you have an opportunity to break into his house and find a list of device, we're not going to slow you down to have these 16 different levels of authorities. The chief of police can give you a, a verbal authority and then you go in and do it. And then retrospectively, you can get the written authority. So um, how organized crime is investigated between the two countries is, is very different. I say that to some law enforcement. They say, oh, I'd love to be a detective in England. And I say that to some people, and they're shocked how easy it is to get these authorities. But, you know, we're talking about those that are bringing in drugs, terrorism, you know, those real bad things in society. But you do want the police to be able to 
investigate and tackle very quickly. Um, and if there's too many authorities, it slows down the investigations because, like I said, the Chinese and Russians are very good at this because they have patience. And for us to investigate and actually um, sort of uh, arrest these people, we also need patience to do them because you might only get one opportunity once in 12 months where Simon's going to ring up someone and say, have you got the the two million pounds because I've got the, the sort of 60 kilos of cocaine. Let's let's get our people talking to each other. So very different culture, John, is what I'm really telling you there. When we talk about organized crime over there, what are some of the the kind of organized crime groups that, that plagued a part of England you policed in? Well, you get different sort of ethnicity, ethnicities, if I can say, that, that do it. I mean, predominantly... Everything, um, you know, funds through um, money laundering. You know what I mean? That, that, that is, the, but behind organized crime, it's easy to say that, you know, money laundering has to be behind it because there's legitimate businesses because they've got to clean their, their money to then sort of integrate it back into the financial institutions. So you'll have various different ways and business types of them, but they'll do that. But when I was leaving sort of towards the end of 2000s and 2011 when I came over, a lot of Eastern European crime well, was coming into the UK and that was getting a lot more violent with um, knife crimes, um, with sort of weapons and with sort of firearms. So firearms as, as a sort of a, a generalization are outlawed in the United Kingdom. And it ten- generally tends to be the organized criminals and the sort of criminals would use the firearms or the high level criminals would use the firearms generally for their own enforcement as a police officer. Very rarely did I see a firearm used. It does happen. So we encounter them quite often. But most, and yeah, but, but, you guys, well, we have a conception here in the United States that all British police are unarmed. That's not accurate, is it? Correct. That is accurate. So we just have roving, um, sort of roaming police cars that have firearms, and then they can be called. You know, so every town, every police department would have a roaming um, armoured vehicle that has, you know, AR various different um, um, firearms on board. But you have to remember, John, as a starting point, um, firearms. Uh, are a few shotguns and hunting rifles are predominantly outlawed in the United Kingdom. So there is the basis that most people you come across won't have those firearms. And if you see them in organized crime, and I did come across a few few guns, a lot of those are generally tending for enforcement of their drug transactions, not necessarily geared towards um, the police. But it does, I don't want to say it doesn't happen, it does happen that police become the victims of those firearms but as a whole they're used for enforcement because you know firearms are outlawed so we don't tend to see too many people with guns and nor do they expect the, the police to be carrying one of the things that i tell people all the time and this is a bone of contention i have with the american media they they have thrown this term out there gun violence gun violence and gun violence and what i always say is violence is violence you may not have come from an environment where there's a lot of gun violence because of legislation but you came from an environment we had a tremendous amount of knife and sharp-edged weapons violence correct yeah absolutely and i mean you spoke about this one time john offline surrounding the easiest thing to really say is that people are people no matter where you are and i think i've visited maybe 30 countries now in my life something like that and you know people are people so um brokenness is brokenness if you replace incident of mass violence here in the u.s you can hopefully change that in England to mass violence with, with, a, with a knife. You know, if someone was going to take out their firearm, 
more likely of getting slashed with a knife or, or some other weapon. So the, the outcome is the same when someone is injured, just the style of weapon is different. So, yeah, I wouldn't, having lived in the US now for 10 years and 33 years in the UK, there isn't really a difference in the criminal mind, just the outcome and their weapon of choice um, changes. It's really crucial for the American audience to, to know Crime is just crime. We used to have a saying that you could do your best with police to try to eliminate the opportunity to commit a crime by being as omnipresent as possible. You couldn't take away absolute access to the tools to commit the crime, and certainly you couldn't take away their motivation to commit the crime. When we return to the Law Enforcement Today show, our interview with Simon Osimo, former police detective from England, also a podcaster and author. We're going to talk about investigating terrorism, international terrorism, and ties to travel, a case that he was involved in. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. There's a huge amount of interest in true crime story podcasts. So we started a new one called True Crime Fighters Podcast. Very few of the true crime podcast tell the stories of the heroes that fight horrific crime. Whether it be law enforcement officers or everyday citizens, we tell their stories on the True Crime Fighters podcast. Each episode, no longer than 15 minutes. Do a Google search for True Crime Fighters podcast. Subscribe today for free or be sure to check us out on Facebook. Do a search for True Crime Fighters podcast. Back to our conversation with Simon Osimo on the Law Enforcement Today show with a fascinating character. Simon is a former law enforcement officer, police detective from the Reading, England area, uh, living in Minnesota. He's also a podcaster and author. We'll talk about his book, his podcast a little bit. One of the things you were involved in, and by the way, thank you for your service. I forgot to say that earlier. I'm really working on getting better at saying it to everyone. And for some reason, I just blanked out when it involves England, but it's very much appreciated what you did over there. Because... One of the cases you're involved in has ramifications for people to travel. The the three one one rule. What is that about? I know what it is. Explain it from your point of view, your perspective. Thanks, John. Yeah, in August two thousand and six, there were some British born Muslim extremists, which basically had they'd taken the idea a step further. But rather than try to get on, and actually, it's quite a, a genius plan when you really think about it. Rather than actually take a bomb onto the plane they're actually going to make the bomb when on the plane so it's tied to as you mentioned the tsa 311 rule um and the british security services uh, very similar to your sort of cia i'm um, here john in the, in the us they are intelligence services they're not sort of apprehension prosecution so after 9-11 like a lot of people every country created these sort of terrorism laws when the plot became known to the security services, it was one of the sort of first times they said, we're going to actually apprehend these individuals in the act, and then we're going to prosecute them using this new legislation rather than just preventing this before it even gets there. So there was a lot of, there was a lot of risk for those at the senior level, for sure, because this hadn't really been um, been done before. But that was the basis of the plot, that some British-born Muslim extremists were actually going to get onto a plane and make the, the bomb use liquids they were going to take, um, take on there, hidden within their, within their luggage and hand luggage, hence 
no longer been able to take liquids onto a, onto a plane. So they were actually followed onto a plane and they tried to start this act and they were intercepted before they can complete it, obviously. No, yeah, they weren't followed onto the plane. So the, the, the sort of plot was foiled before then, I should okay. say. Um, but that was that was the basic as to what they were intended to do, yes. Yeah, so we, the, the plot was foiled before then. That's really that would be hairy. very close. Yeah, because, look, there's always a rule of thumb that we had in law enforcement. And I imagine the same with, with you guys over there is, when I say guys, I mean men and women. If we allow them to go a step further, can they commit a crime and harm or kill people? So it's always it's always questionable. It's always fear-driven. We've got to we got to catch him, but we got to be able to make the case. So that must have been an overriding factor for you guys. Absolutely, and, and you know, I'm not going to betray that I was at that level involved in any of those decisions, but I do understand from doing a lot of reading and research afterwards that actually America, because the planes were destined to come to America, that's where these um, guys were wanting to go. But America was saying, well, let us, you know, get, let us know who they are, and we'll basically, you know, um, take it from here. But the British um, security services and law enforcement were really, no, we want to use this, this legislation and to apprehend these individuals. So it was fascinating to, to work on. And there was one individual in particular, I can remember at the time we were doing surveillance on someone. I can remember looking around John and sort of their motivation and the sort of plot was in my mind. I was thinking, this person here that we're following intends to kill you know, two or three thousand people. And I can remember stopping, pausing and thinking about that, that someone that appears so normal and someone who is blended into everyday suburbia has this mindset and has this intent. So there was numerous different facets of things that I learned during that investigation, but it was also um, very key to me to be able to look in the eyes almost of someone that intends to cause so much harm and have them appear so normal to me. It was um, it was quite a unique time and moment in my life, John. Yeah, I've never understood them. I don't understand the thought processes. Look, I can, and it helps when you're trying to catch someone, whether you're in uniform patrol or you're a detective, whatever, and you've got a criminal, to think like a criminal, which way would I go? What would I do? It makes it a little easier to apprehend them. But when you talk about terrorists or serial criminals, look, they think in a different way that doesn't that doesn't really fit in a normal brain like yours and mine. So, uh, in a way, and I hate the term "fascinated," but I I find them intriguing because I don't understand them and their motivation at all. Yeah, and it is really hard. And I think one of the things working in organized crime is understanding people's mindsets and motivations as well, and their sort of ideology. Uh, you need to um, you need to have empathy towards them, and you, you know you never should because you know these are horrible, horrible people. But really understanding their mindset, you know, what is it that they're truly trying to accomplish? Um, how are they hoping to do that? Um, what, what does that mean for the good of society? But for me, or the bad of society in some cases, for me, really trying to get into that mindset really helps you to understand. Okay, so then, then we, we know this. What are they going to act like? What are they going to walk like? What are they going to be like? How do we find times or disrupt that crime? 
find opportunities to infiltrate them to get intelligence that we can then use against them to bring down their sort of cell or their organized crime group and stuff you know um infiltration is, is a big big part of it really understanding people's lives and, and motivation to to be able to then go and follow them and do a lot of these covert police tactics right and the, the motivations oftentimes boil down to money greed jealousy anger so-called crimes of passion those you know you can kind of think like a criminal and kind of try to figure it out and say if, if he's motivated by money for doing this then this would probably be his next step or that'd be the next step so that's one way but we talk about serial criminals rapists uh, sex offenders pedophiles terrorists they operate on a totally different plane and i've never been able to figure them out and i'll be honest the 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 profilers that have got it down to a science i don't get it whatsoever but i want to shift gears i want to talk about you as an individual after your life in law enforcement you immigrate to the united states and you have a podcast you've written a book let's talk about your podcast first yeah, thank you, John. So the Whoever Became podcast is really about um, people that have found their purpose, overcome adversity, or created a positive mindset. Because I've met a lot of interesting people in my life. I've seen a lot of change and transformation in their lives. I've seen a lot of change and transformation in, in my life. And I just love to share the story because we often think that we're, we're going through things alone. I am the only one that this has ever happened to. And we know that isn't the case. So I just love to learn the, the became piece. How did you get your success? How did you overcome your tra- your transformation, uh, you know, your, sorry, your adversity, to really help them, other people grow and learn and be inspired by the stories to know that they can make a positive change in, in their lives. So I, I, just, I just love people that I get to meet um, through the Who Became podcast. And what is the name of your book? Yeah, so the book I've actually been two books. So because of my background in safety and security, and when I first moved to America, I was in charge of counterterrorism at Mall of America, now one of the largest pieces of infrastructure in the Midwest. I got into um, safety and security for nonprofits. So I've got one called Securing Church Operations, and then the second one is Understanding Suspicious Behavior. Most acts of um, criminality generally start with breaking social boundaries so i sort of teach people what to go looking for around suspicious behavior and then how to try and intercept that uh, with a sort of more positive outcome and where can people get more information about you and all the things you do yes yeah, so, i mean there's a lot of different things that i, I do john from the became podcast safety consulting to, to coaching young men that have been through similar circumstances to me but the best thing is just to head over to my own personal website which is simonosimo.com my last name is O-S-A-M-O-H, so just simonosimo.com, where you'll find all the information on there. All my consulting business, my safety and security, is kingswoodsc.com, kingswoodsc.com. So that's how people can, can connect if anything I said has, has resonated with them today. Simon, I want to thank you for all you've done, and I want to thank you for being a guest on the show. Very much appreciated. John, I'm really appreciative of your time today, and I love what you're doing on your radio show and on your podcast. So I want to thank you for inspiring many people and remaining the positive part about law enforcement. That's really, uh, really uh, important in today's world. So thank you for everything that you do, John. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today radio show. The Law Enforcement Today radio show is a nationally syndicated radio show broadcast on numerous stations once a week and growing. 
If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, please do me a big favor. Leave an honest review and or rating. I'll be back in just a couple days with a brand new episode of the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya.